Lecture Six, Chinese Classical Literature. For the first six lectures in this series, first five lectures in this series, we've been talking about how Lecture Six is going to be very different from what we've looked at so far. We are at Lecture Six, and we will see this one is going to be very different. We have spent the first five lectures really essentially in the heroic world, talking about larger-than-life characters and heroic actions and gods and goddesses. Here we come to a culture, the Chinese culture, which did not create an epic tradition.、Um, Chinese literature begins with lyric poems, which are personal, which are subjective, in which we hear the voices of ordinary people going around doing ordinary things. And this we're going to illustrate、um, with a couple of things. First, we're going to take one look at one、um, lyric poem from early China, and then we're going to take a look at two writers, Confucius and Zhuang Zhou, who are generally considered more philosophers than they are literary writers. But we're doing this in part simply to demonstrate the difference between the traditions we've been looking at in the early Chinese tradition, and since Zhuang Zhou particularly is a great storyteller, he can work just as well as literature. As he does as philosophy, the first poem is going to come from a book which can be translated as the Book of Songs. It's the Shi Jing.、Um, it was compiled probably between the tenth and the seventh centuries BCE. It consists of three hundred and five poems. Later on,、uh, tradition was going to assign the editing of this text to a Confucius, and it was going to develop a lot of lore about how these poems were connect- collected. But Later scholars have thought that it probably is an independent work of the Zhou court. Later on, Confucian scholars adapted this work and used it for teaching purposes. In fact, it became one of the five Confucian classics, which was used as a basis for Chinese education for millennia. Few breaks in there, but a couple of thousand years. For over two thousand years, again with the occasional break,、um, every educated person in China would have known these poems, so they could. Become a kind of shorthand in social situations. You could open a delicate negotiation by, by citing a line from a poem. If you wanted to say something that you didn't really want to speak in your own voice, you could quote a line from a poem with the understanding that if the other person was an educated person, he would understand that poem too. There are 305 poems in the Book of Songs, and of those 305, 106, 60 are usually considered folk songs or ordinary songs, songs of ordinary life. Talking about ordinary joys and occupations and festivals and harvest songs and all manner of, of things, which give us a kind of interesting glimpse into the life of ordinary people nearly three thousand years ago. We will come back to Chinese poetry in a later lecture when we talk about the Tang poets, and when we get there, we'll talk a little bit about Chinese theories of poetry, which are a little bit different from the theories of poetry in the West. But for the time being, we're just going to use one poem, just simply to sort of illustrate、um, the kind of nature and texture and 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 the focus of this early collection of poems. This is from Stephen Owen's translation, and it's typical of certain qualities of this entire collection.、Um, it's the voice of an anonymous person whose concerns are of the mundane, not the heroic sort.、Um, the boat, the the poem's title is "Boat of Cyprus." That boat of Cyprus drifts along; it drifts upon the stream. Restless am I; I cannot sleep, as though in torment and troubled. Nor am I lacking wine to ease my mind and let me roam. This heart of mine is no mirror; it cannot take in all. Yes, I do have brothers, but brothers will not be my stay. I went and told them of my grief and met only with their rage. This heart of mine is no stone; 
You cannot turn it where you will. This heart of mine is no mat. I cannot roll it up within. I have behaved with dignity. In this no man can fault me. My heart is uneasy and restless. I am reproached by little men. Many are the woes I've met and taken slights more than a few. I think on it in the quiet and waking pound my breast. O sun and you moon, why do you each grow dim in turn? These troubles of the heart are like unwashed clothes. I think on it in the quiet. I cannot spread wings to fly away. As I said, we'll come back and talk about how Chinese poetry works uh, in a later program. But this one, we can say this much about it, that as with so many Chinese poems, this starts with a picture that both suggests a situation and sets a mood. In this case, the picture is of a, of a boat, a cypress boat, simply drifting aimlessly along. We don't know who's speaking this, but at least some critics have decided that the voice belongs to that of a young woman who's being coerced into doing something that she doesn't want to do. And then the poem goes on to give a series of negative images for a heart that will not be forced. She says, if my heart were a mirror, it would just reflect what other people wanted it to reflect. If it's a stone, you could push it around and put it anywhere you want. If it's a mat, it could be folded up so that the sorrows within could be hidden. And then at the, the very last image, I find it really a, a, a charming image. The unwashed dressed, dress suggests that the, the sorrows that cling to the heart are not part of the heart. They could be detached as either the dress is from the body or perhaps even more likely as dirt can be detached from a dress. And it ends with a wish to fly away, which can't be done in reality, which can only be done in the mind. The subject and the tone of this poem are an amazing contrast to the works that we've been looking at in this course so far. The same contrast can be seen in the Analects of Confucius. Um, Confucius, and he's, by the way, the first writer we have in this course for whom we have some really honest-to-goodness solid dates. It feels kind of nice to have some birth and death, death dates, 551 to 479 BCE. Confucius, like Socrates and Jesus, was a teacher who didn't write a book of his own. The Analects are a collection of sayings which were gathered together by his disciples years and sometimes even centuries after his death. And they are all presumably parts of larger discussions. That is, a discussion will come up and then Confucius will say something and that thing gets written down without necessarily giving us the context for when this was said. And sometimes they seem to be answers to questions. And again, we don't have the question. And to make it even more complex a read, um, the little sayings of, of Confucius are not arranged in anything like thematic ways or ordered in any kind of way. They seem to be totally random. So we get bits and pieces of Confucian wisdom from all over the map in the same, uh, in the same book. Burton Watson, in a book called Early Chinese Literature, says that reading this book is a little like hearing a conversation from next door, that we can catch a sentence here and there, we can catch a word here and there, but we don't have the complete context, and so we have to kind of guess at the full meaning. In spite of that, however, this has been one of the most important and influential books in the whole history of, of Chinese culture. Confucius' teachings are all solidly this-worldly. As far as we can tell, Confucius believed in heaven and believed in the gods, or at least believed in ancestral spirits. But, as he puts it in the Analects, to work for the things the common people have a right to, and to keep one's distance from the gods and spirits while showing them reverence, can be called wisdom. Some people have actually suggested this is the first attempt to make a church and state separation, and what he's saying is that 
there's nothing wrong with gods or religion. I just want not to talk about that. I would rather talk about something else. And what Confucius does talk about, what he focuses on, is human relationships, which he always sees as hierarchical, the model for which is always the relationship between a parent and a child. And those human relationships that he wants to talk about always stress social propriety and moral propriety and moral responsibility and good manners. Proper human relations for Confucius are always expressed in ritual, in ceremony, in social forms, which A.C. Graham in a book called Disputers of the Tao says we might think of as good manners, which should always be observed unless there's a compelling reason not to. Um, D.C. Lau, who um, is the translator of the, uh, the passages that we're reading from the Analects today, defines these rights. The Chinese word is li, L-I, and he, he defines them this way. He said, the rights were a body of rules governing action in every aspect of life, and they were the repository of past insights into morality. It is therefore important that one should, unless there are strong reasons to the contrary, observe them. And Confucius himself says in, uh, in a passage from the Analects, he says the gentleman has morality as his basic stuff and by observing the rights puts it into practice. By being modest gives it expression and by being trustworthy in word brings it to completion. Such is a gentleman indeed. What this means is that the, the good manners, uh, ceremony, the rites, as, uh, as they're, they're called here, are really not ends in themselves, but they are always means to an end. They are the vehicle through which the right expresses itself. So the next question we have to ask is, what is that right? What are we talking about? What is that stuff that makes a gentleman a gentleman, which is expressed via these rites, these rituals? The right for Confucius turns out always to be something like benevolence. And it can be axiomatically stated in um, what has been called the Confucian Golden Rule. And it really is a beautiful statement when he, he says, When abroad, behave as though you were receiving an important guest. When employing the services of the common people, behave as though you were officiating at an important sacrifice. Do not impose on others what you yourself do not desire." That's the, the, Confucian, the Confucian version of the Golden Rule. Don't expect other people to do what you wouldn't like to do yourself. Sometime in one of these little passages in the Analects, when a disciple asks, if there's a single word that you could use to, that can govern all of life, Confucius says the word is shu, S-H-U, which A.C. Graham translates as likening to oneself. That is, putting oneself in the place of the other. So if there's one rule that will govern all of your life, that's the one. The disciple says, the way of the master consists in doing one's best and in using oneself as a measure to gauge others. So if we put ourselves in the position of the other and then do for him what we would have him do for us, we have found the thread that Confucius says ties all of his teaching together. The goal of all this teaching, the point of the teaching for Confucius is to train young men for government service. And his teachings also then contain a vision of what government would be like if you had a bunch of young men who had been trained in this kind of way and they all made a government, what that government would be like if every official in government were to observe the rule of benevolence and likening to oneself. And what, what Confucius' vision of a government like that would be is he says it would be a government that would require no coercion. 
virtue would emanate from all of the people who are in it in such a way that it would it would lead people to desire to be good themselves. Um, the ruler, he says, could be like the pole star, which could command homage without leaving its place um, you, through just the rite and ceremonies and ritual. As, uh, as he says, in administering your government, what need is there for you to kill? Just desire the good yourself, and the common people will be good. He says a little bit later in the, in the same book, in the Analects, if there was a ruler who achieved order without taking any action, it was perhaps Shun. There was nothing for him to do but to hold himself in a respectful posture and to face due south. So if you're a really perfect ruler, you'll know you're a perfect ruler when you don't have to do anything, when all you have to do is sit respectfully and, as he says, face south. So a good ruler would have laws, but he wouldn't need to enforce them. And a great ruler would demonstrate his greatness by doing absolutely nothing. Two more quotations that I they think are very good on this subject. In administering your government, what need is there for you to kill? Just desire the good yourself, and the common people will be good. And then he says, the rule of virtue can be compared to the pole star, which commands the homage of the multitude of stars without leaving its place. How powerful would this kind of virtue be? Um, he, he has a discussion with his disciples once, and he says he's really thinking about um, settling among the nine bar- barbarian tribes of the East. And his, his disciples try to talk him out of that. They said, you know, you're, you're such a cultivated man. How would you live among these people? The passage goes like this. The master wanted to settle amongst the nine barbarian tribes of the East. Someone said, but could you put up with their uncouth ways? The master said, once a gentleman settles amongst them, what uncouthness would there be? And so the point is you put one, this is like the opposite of our proverb, which says one bad apple can spoil the entire barrel. He says one good apple can refresh and uh, renew and reinvigorate the entire, uh, entire barrel. The question, of course, that people have asked over the years is, you know, is this, is this practical? Is, could this possibly work? Um, could you imagine a world in which people would be so virtuous that everybody else would want to be virtuous too because all this virtue is emanating out from the center? If we think about you know, later political theory, think about what would Machiavelli have said about the possibility of something like this working? It is, is it possible that it could have worked? Down through history, um, Confucianism has been attacked frequently because it has led, it can lead to hypocrisy and authoritarianism. But that may not be Confucius' fault any more than the depredations of all of Christianity down through history can be laid at the feet of of Jesus. What he was looking for, and this is a vision which has animated so many philosophers and writers down through history, what he was looking for was he was looking for a balanced individual. And if you have a bunch of balanced individuals, you can make a balanced state. As he says about himself, he says, At 15, I set my heart on learning. At 30, I took my stand. At 40, I came to be free from doubts. At 50, I understood the decree of heaven. At 60, my ear was attuned. At 70, I followed my heart's desire without overstepping the line. And that end end place is one where Plato is going to try to get into in the Republic, where so many other people are going to to try to get, where your instinct and your duty is identical so you don't have to choose between them. What you want to do and what you need to do are identical, and you never have to choose between them again. We'll run across that same idea in the Bhagavad Gita a couple of lectures ahead. It's an attractive vision in which um, the combination of virtue and manners and custom and ritual can harmonize all of human relations. 
Um, still, still, a, still a, a wonderful, wonderful read. While Confucius was training young men for government service, our other writer, Zhuang Zhou, um, who else, for whom we also have dates, 369 to 286 BCE, Zhuang Zhou didn't found a school, he didn't seek out disciples, and in fact, what he wanted was a kind of freedom from all that stuff. He, he wanted to stay out of government, and he wanted to teach people how to keep their minds free from authority, from conventional categories and ways of thinking. He tells a story that one day while he was out fishing, um, some ambassadors from the Zhou state came to offer him the post of prime minister. He didn't even bother to turn his head to say no. He just said no because he didn't want to interrupt his fishing, which goes to show how far he was from desiring a, a government post. Um, we know virtually nothing of uh, Zhuang Zhou's life. Like uh, Confucius, there were lots and lots of stories that were told about him after his death. Some of them may be true. It's hard to tell at this distance which ones. He is generally considered to be one of the founders of Taoism. Um, and Taoism, to again give an oversimplified definition, is generally a discipline which is designed to get one into harmony with things. Um, as to getting into harmony as you might get into the flow of a river and allow the river to carry you along. Which can be done only by freeing oneself from everything that we have been taught which is always sectarian and limited and always comes with an agenda along with it. He tells a story um, in his book about um, someone who comes to visit Lao Tzu, who's the better known founder of Taoism. This man comes to Lao Tzu and says, um, I need guidance, tell me how to live. Lao Tzu asks him why he's brought along a crowd of people. And when he turns around to look, there's no one there. The, Lao Tzu's point here was that we carry around with us ideas and training and advice that we've gotten from parents and teachers and priests. And Lao Tzu says, if we're going to talk, all those people will have to go. And what he means is all those ideas are going to have to go. We're going to have to clear our heads and start from scratch. In, in Zhuang Zhou's own book, he begins his first chapter with a, with a chapter that's fairly technical, but it, it, it can be followed, and it demonstrates two things. The first one is that language is not an accurate reflector of reality which already suggests one of the fundamental principles of Taoism, which is the way that can be talked about isn't the true way. Secondly, he says that everything that we know, by the way, the, the linguistic point I think is interesting because a lot of modern linguistics have really come around to, to the same point that Lao Tzu makes. It caught, took us 3,000 years to catch up with him, but here we are. Um, second, the second point of that early chapter is that everything we know is based on categories which are defined by language and are determined by where we sit, what our perspective is on things. Um, he tells a story about a bird which is so large that when it looks down, all it sees is blue. The same thing that we see when we look up into the, into the sky. He says he tells this story to a cicada and a dove, which of course have much, much more limited ranges of flight, and they don't believe that such a bird could possibly exist. And he says, well, you know, we do the same thing all of the time. Wherever we happen to be sitting, whatever we happen to be seeing, we define reality in terms of that relative perspective, and we also do it in categories of language, both of which lead, lead us awry. So the first chapter establishes skepticism about language and about what we can know and what we can communicate. And, you know, he, he knows that somebody's going to say to him, look, if you don't trust language, what are you doing writing a book? because you're writing a book yourself, which is made up of language, right? 
and, and, he, and he knows this, and so he frequently turns his criticism on his own book. And so quite often during those first couple of chapters, he'll stop and say, did I just say something? Did I just say something that made sense? Um, and he uses paradox, and he uses parables, and he uses stories to tell these things. Sometimes he'll give one argument in one chapter and another argument just exactly the opposite. He'll refute that argument in the next chapter. And we can't always tell when he's being serious and when he's being facetious. So the book is a, is a challenge. It's, it's a kind of a mind game. It's a kind of puzzle to work out to see if we can follow him through this. And he tells lots of stories. He is a really good storyteller. Um, when we get to the New Testament, we'll see that Jesus prefers in his teaching in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke at any rate, he prefers telling stories rather than to give discursive answers. And Zhuangzhou does that too. He'd rather tell a good story to make a point than he is to try to explain it. The question that his book asks is given if language is unreliable and if our perspectives are all relative and our categories of understanding are always wrong because they're made up of categories of language, how should we live? What should we do? And then he tells a story, and this is one of the really really moving stories and and one that his commentators say is really very important in his whole life. He tells a story about going into a park one day. He was hunting a magpie. And he said he had his eyes really intently on the magpie because he was going to catch that magpie. The magpie didn't notice that he was stalking it because the magpie was stalking a praying mantis. Now, the praying mantis didn't notice that the magpie was stalking it because it had its eye on a cicada. And Zhuangzhou said, just sitting here thinking about the implications of that scene made me shudder. And he said, I finally realized, you know, this is, this is, this is what we all do all of the time. And so he said, I prepared to leave the park. And he said, when I left the park, I realized I was being chased by a gamekeeper who had been watching me the entire time, but I was so focused on the magpie that I didn't notice. This story, this story seems to be a kind of turning point in Zhuangzhou's life. A.C. Graham in The Disputers of the Tao says about this, he said that this experience, this is his first step to reconciliation with the dissolution of personal identity in universal process. He sees, starting out with this experience, he begins to see finally that everything is unified, everything is one which we miss every time we make categories and see things only from our only limited our own limited perspective everything in the world cooperates with everything else except for us humans who miss the way by sticking to codes laid down by sages the true way for for Zhuangzhou is the entire universe flowing from its source which we falsify the moment that we name it Again, this is, this is uh, from, from, his, uh, from his book. This is a translation by Burton Watson. For this reason, whether you point to a little stalk or a great pillar, a leper or the beautiful Shi Chi, things ribald and shady or things grotesque and strange, the way makes them all into one. Their dividedness is their completeness. Their completeness is their impairment. No thing is either complete or impaired, but all are made into one again. Only the man of far-reaching vision knows how to make them into one. So he has no use, for categories, but relegates all to the constant. The constant is the useful. The useful is the passable. The passable is the successful. And with success, all is accomplished. He relies upon this alone, relies upon it, and does not know he was doing so. This is called the way. And so what, what the point is here is that everything is one, and what our job is to do is try to somehow figure out 
how to find our way into that place, into that, into that, that way. And when he tells about stories about people who have found their way in, who understand this teaching, who know how to do this, his stories are mostly about craftspeople, about cooks and carpenters and swimmers and boatmen and cicada catchers who are not analytical and who have, in fact, sometimes forgotten the rules that they were taught when they were learning their craft, but who have the ability, based on their experience, to size up an entire situation to respond to it using both eye and hand and mind in a way that usually can't be put into words. One of his really, really famous stories is one about a cook, and it's the cook who's speaking here, is a cook who says that you can tell the difference between a good cook and a bad cook because a bad cook has to sharpen his knife all the time, and a good cook hardly ever has to sharpen his knife. And so he goes on speaking this way. A good cook changes his knife once a year because he cuts. A mediocre cook changes his knife once a month because he hacks. I've had this knife of mine for 19 years, and I've cut up thousands of oxen with it, and yet the blade is as good as though it had just come from the grindstone. There are spaces between the joints, and the blade of the knife has really no thickness. So if you insert what has no thickness into such spaces, then there's plenty of room, more than enough for the blade to play about in. That's why, after 19 years, the blade of my knife is still as good as when it first came from the grindstone. However, when I come to a, whenever I come to a complicated place, I size up the difficulties, tell myself to watch out and be careful, keep my eyes on what I'm doing, work very slowly, and move the knife with the greatest subtlety until, flop, the whole thing comes apart like a clod of earth crumbling to the ground. I stand there holding the knife and look all around me, completely satisfied and reluctant to move on, and then I wipe off the knife and put it away. The Lord who hears the cook telling this story says, Excellent! I have heard the words of Cook Ting and learned how to care for life. The point is, as A.C. Graham points out, is to find the way things go and then cooperate with them as water finds its own channel. It isn't thoughtless. Um, Rather, it's based on a lifetime of experience and then sizing up an entire situation as a whole and not analyzing it into parts according to somebody's logical rules. Um, I've taught this, this work many times in classes and sometimes I had professionals in my classes, and I had an eye surgeon once who did laser eye surgery. And when he came to this passage, he said, I know exactly what he means. I know exactly what he means. He said, I had gotten to a point in my career where I could do that. And then a couple of years later, I had a painter, and the painter said the same thing. The painter said, you do that. You look at a canvas you, you, you have in mind. You look at the whole thing. You don't analyze it. You don't start by doing one and two things. You just size up the whole situation. And then, like Cook Ting, you move your knife, which has no thickness, between those little tiny spaces, and everything flop. It all falls into place. One last thing about Zhuangzhou, and this one is really important, too. Um, in, a, in a culture in which burial rites and the veneration of the dead was very, very important, Zhuangzhou says that the way can rise above the distinction between life and death as well. He said the distinction between life and death is another one of those artificial distinctions. And the way teaches us how to rise above that. Life is process. Um, even death is part of the process of life, like the rotation of the seasons. And he says that, you know, one of the things he dreams about is he says, what do you suppose is going to happen? He said, when I go, he said, I'm not going to just disappear. 
But he says, perhaps I'll be transformed into something else. Maybe next time I'll be around as a rooster or as a crossbow pellet or as a cartwheel or as a rat liver or a bug's leg. And he says, it doesn't matter how I come back because all things are one and all things are equal anyway, as that passage we looked at just a moment ago said. And so uh, Burton Watson says about this attitude toward life and death, particularly in the Chinese culture, he says his view is completely new and without precedent in the literature before his time. When his wife died, um, he said he spent his time out in front of the house banging on a pot and singing until he was reprimanded by people. He said, it doesn't look like you're missing your wife much. And he said, I do miss my wife. But he said, I suddenly realized, I realized that even though I miss her, she's now part of the, of, of the cycle of the seasons. She's now the companion of spring and of autumn and of winter and of summer. And weeping is simple incomprehension. And so he stops and he begins to sing. When his own disciples say they are going to uh, they make sure that he gets buried properly when he dies, he said, why bother? He said, why would you rather feed the worms with my body than the birds? And so for him, all of this business, all of the, uh, the, the, the Chinese uh, conception about death and the ancestors and all of that all goes by the way once we understand the way uh, perfectly. Um, the Chinese literature of the classical period thus stands in really high contrast to the literature of other earlier civilizations, a point which we can illustrate by such contemporary books, such modern books. Benjamin Hoff wrote two books called The Tao of Pooh and The Tay of Piglet. And it, you just think about that. It works for these, but can you imagine writing a book called The Tao of Gilgamesh or The Tao of Achilles or even The Tay of, uh, of King David? In general terms, most the literature of most early cultures is heroic, and it leans slightly toward the tragic in the larger sense, in that what heroes do is tries to try to bend the universe to their will. They fight against the universe and quite frequently fail. Early Chinese poetry, on the other hand, and we're not talking about comedy and tragedy in literary terms, but just in very general terms, early Chinese literature, on the other hand, leans slightly toward the comic in the broadest sense of that term, because here what we find are people who are trying to find those forces that are larger than we are and then allow them to carry us along, to try to align ourselves with them. That's our brief look at early classical Chinese uh, literature. In our next three lectures, we will be back into the more conventional heroic world as we visit Greece, Rome, and India, and we'll be back in the world of heroes and the epic poems again. Those are our next lectures.